Thank you. Uh, Heather, do you want to come up and we can pray for each other? Let's just welcome God. Let's just take a moment. Yeah. Um, Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be in your presence this morning, to worship you, to be family together, to read your word, to mm. hear you speak, Lord. And I just um, receive the blessing that you have for all of us this morning, for me, for Heather. Lord, yeah. I pray that you would bless Heather as she speaks, that as she pours out, you would pour into her, Lord. And the same for me, Lord, please fill me up. <laughs> um, and just bless us all with what you want to say this morning. We're, our ears, our hearts are open, Lord Jesus. Mm. Amen. Amen. Okay. Good morning, everybody. Hi. Um, so I think I've so I've written my preach out in full. I always do this at the start of all my preaches. I always go off on a bit of a tangent. I think. Um, so I actually want to pick up on what Olive was praying about before, and. Um, I'll come back to this at the end after I'm going to preach first, Heather's going to preach second, and I'm going to come back to a couple of things at the end. But the first thing that I just want to say that I, I felt came through in worship with that song Reckless Love and with what Olive was praying, um, that I, I believe that the word of the gospel is going out today. The word of God is alive and, and the word tells us that it, it can pierce through bone and marrow. And I believe that today the word of God, the gospel is going out into hearts to pierce through to the very, the very depths of our hearts this morning. Um, and that the power of the spirit is here to gather hearts to Jesus because of the good news of the gospel going right deep down deep into our hearts. Um, so I don't know if there is anybody here who doesn't know Jesus today, but I do... Um, I strongly feel that there's an invitation to salvation today and that there's an invitation into relationship with Jesus because of the gospel, the truth of the gospel that is going out. Um, like Olive prayed for God's love to flow through us to those around us. Um, if there's anyone in this room today who hasn't yet known and experienced the love of God, um, I believe this morning is for you and that the gospel is being sent out, that living word is being sent out for your heart this morning. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to start with that. Okay, now to preach. So today, Heather and I are preaching about friendship, um, which I don't think is something we've had a specific preach about at church um, that I can remember for a while. Um, it's something we've both been musing upon in different ways for some time. It's something Heather has been thinking on for years, and she'll talk a bit about that later. Um, I'm going to be speaking first about our friendship with others and what kingdom friendship looks like. And then Heather is going to be talking about her own experience of God's friendship and how we can value friendship with God as a foundational aspect of our faith. So um, in a world that is filled with hopelessness and inconsistency, self-sufficiency and a profound lack of trust, similar to what Mark's just been saying, our friendships can be a shining light demonstrating the heart of Jesus towards his creation, the people around us. So what do kingdom friendships look like? How should our friendships be? And what does the Bible have to say about our friendships with other people? And then how do we emulate what we read about in the word? That's where I'm going for the next apparently 17 and a half minutes, according to my phone timer last night. Um, so when I started planning this preach, the first script from my heart was from 1 Corinthians. It's chapter 13. We know it well. Verses 1 to 3. Um, I don't have slides with these on because I wasn't organized enough so if you have your phone or your bible you might want to turn to it 1 Corinthians 13 it says 
If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. That's the word of God shaking the foundations there. Um, Often this passage is read in the context of the Corinthians being chastised for valuing spiritual gifts over and above love. Um, But today I want us to consider these verses even more simply and to redirect our focus onto that well-known word agape, which is used here. And I know lots of us might have heard that word before. Um, Agape love is not solely God's love. Biblically, it's actually also used in the context of human love. Um, It's possible for humans to have agape love for things. So in the Bible, that word is actually used for human love for sin. Um, It can be that kind of love for sport, that kind of love for money, or for people, or for God. So agape love is sacrificial, giving, and utterly absorbing. When we love someone or something with agape, we would give up all that we have for the object of our love and affection. The word has little to do with emotion. It's not about how we feel. Rather, it has much to do with self-denial for the sake of another. We could read these verses in Corinthians and think that Paul is saying that if we're unfriendly, then our lives mean nothing. But agape isn't really what we often think of as friendliness. It is self-denial for the sake of another, and this is the true meaning of friendship. Self-denial and the laying down of one's life for another. Like Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. To me, this is the beauty of friendship. Friendship is never a matter of obligation. It's always a choice. Unlike family, we choose with whom we build friendship. Similarly, God chose to include us, most of us here, I think, Gentiles rather than Jews, as his friends. John chapter 15 goes on to say, You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father, I've made known to you. Um, I don't know about you. But I'm deeply moved by the thought that God intentionally chose me before I was formed in my mother's womb to be his friend. He reached out to me in all of my brokenness and potential to give me the opportunity to be his friend. Not only did he adopt me as his daughter, but he also made me his friend. He didn't have to. There was no obligation and he certainly didn't owe me anything, but he chose to do this all the same. The picture of Jesus as a friend is the man on the cross laying down his life for those he loved and called his friends, even as they deserted him in his moment of greatest vulnerability and need. Arms outstretched, always reaching out, Jesus shows us friendship in all its power. That's the kind of friends that we are called to be to those around us. We are called to live with arms outstretched, lives wide open, no matter whether we're surrounded by those that we call friends or utterly deserted. The kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven never looks different to the life of Jesus, 
because he was the start of that whole process. Jesus on earth, God become man, is the kingdom of heaven on the earth. So the kingdom-orientated friendships that we're desiring to build will never look any different to the life and to the action of Jesus. He is our standard. So everything I'm going to talk about today, I'm, I'm going to focus on a couple of different friendships in the Bible. But I, wanna, I want us to constantly be thinking about Jesus. Jesus' friendship and Jesus' life while we look at those stories because he is our standard. Um, and I believe that standard is so important today. Um, over the last six or so months, I've been reflecting on my own friendships and the values that our society holds today when it comes to friendship. Um, many of my friendships seem to be defined by geographical distance. In the world today, we're more disparate than we ever have been, arguably. Conversations have been redefined by social media and messaging platforms. Quick questions can easily be pinged across the ether um, to someone in a very different place. And we can respond to those questions either carefully in a guarded way or just quickly, yeah, yeah I'm fine. How are you? We can present a certain picture of our lives, whether it's a full and realistic representation of how we are and who we are or not. And our friendships tend to fit, well, I'll speak for myself, my friendships have tended to fit with the stage of life that I'm in. And they can become a matter of convenience amongst all the other responsibilities and duties that we have. Um, friendships can be quick fixes. Um, some of my friendships add to my sense of who I should be or what I should be doing, or what having a successful life is supposed to look like. I'm supposed to have lots of friends. I'm supposed to go and do all these exciting things with all these people. Um, or friendships can fall to the wayside entirely, subsumed by all the other parts of our life and falling to the bottom of our list of priorities when we've got to think about um, doing the washing and organising the dinner and dropping children in places or picking up our grandchildren from nursery or going to work and dealing with all those other things that are happening in our lives. Um, whatever state our friendships are in today, whether they look like any of mine, whether they look completely different, let's take this time to reflect on how our friendships can better represent the love and the life of Jesus. So where in the Word can we look for examples of true kingdom friendship? I've been reflecting on several different examples, but today I want to focus on one better-known story, that of Jonathan and David. And one lesser known example of Mary and Elizabeth, who were actually cousins, but also friends. So I'm going to start with Mary and Elizabeth. We can read about their friendship in Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 45. That's Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 45. So it says, At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who believed that the Lord would fulfil his promises to her. Mary then sings her prophetic song, which is called the Magnificat. And verse 56 later says, Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. So the first thing that we see of the friendship between Mary and Elizabeth is that Elizabeth recognises what God is doing in her friend's life and exclaims, blessed are you, 
when John leaps in her womb at the presence of Jesus the Christ. Friendship sees God's divine plan and purpose, and it proclaims blessing in line with God's purposes. Elizabeth sees with the eyes of the Spirit and perceives God's divine activity in Mary's life. Then she blesses what she perceives. Secondly, we read that Mary sings her joyful song, the Magnificat, which praises and magnifies God after Elizabeth's blessing and encouragement. The blessing proclaimed by her friend helps to release a God-focused song in Mary. The relationship and encouragement of their friendship points Mary towards God. And thirdly, we read that Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months during her pregnancy before returning home. They shared a precious period of their lives together as their babies grew. Here, kingdom friendship does three things. It perceives and encourages. It directs towards God and it creates a home for the other person. Whether your friendship is with someone who already knows Jesus or someone who does not, we can still aim to do these three things. In our culture, where people are so quick to move on from one thing to the next, where progress seems paramount and convenience is king, it's countercultural to take the time to love with agape, to perceive with our spirits, and to encourage intentionally without an aim for personal gain. It is by investing in agape love and countercultural kingdom friendship that we shine the light of Jesus to those in our circles. Elizabeth and Mary are an excellent example for us to follow. Now let's go on to look at Jonathan and David. I love this story. Kingdom friendship is faithful. One of the defining characteristics of Jonathan and David's friendship is utter faithfulness. This is defined as being firm and not changing in your friendship with or support for a person or in your belief in your principles. It is an unwavering commitment to another individual, regardless of circumstance. The Greek word used in the Bible is pistos, which is also defined as trusty, that can be relied upon, believing, confiding, trusting, and one who believes in God's promises. This term is used 67 times in the New Testament, so it's important. And it's one of the defining characteristics that the Bible gives us about God. Before we look at some specific passages from 1 Samuel, and there are lots about David and Jonathan dotted here and there, let me paint a contextual picture. I'd never thought about it this way when I was reading through the story, Um, but it just, it was awesome. It occurred to me while I was reading it that Jonathan was the eldest son of King Saul. In other words, he was the heir to the throne of Israel. We first hear Jonathan mentioned in 1 Samuel chapter 13 when he attacks a Philistine outpost in Geber. In chapter 14, he then attacks the Philistines again, alone, just with his armor bearer, and together they kill at least 20 Philistines after waiting for a sign from the Lord, and then God causes a panic in the Philistine camp, which leads to a victory for Israel. Jonathan was clearly courageous, and he was skilled in battle, and he listened to the Lord. But he wasn't perfect. Later in the story, he breaks an oath taken by the Israelite army not to eat, and he nearly dies as a consequence. This is a man who was courageous, ready for battle, listened to the Lord. He was the eldest son of the most powerful man in Israel, and he was destined to take on that position of power himself. In our cultural context, it seems obvious that the relationship between the famous and powerful heir to the throne and the young unknown shepherd boy 
anointed to take the throne out of his hands, should hardly be positive. Surely this would be a relationship of bitterness, resentment and competition, if any relationship at all. This context makes the friendship, the love and the faithfulness between Jonathan and David even more remarkable. After David is anointed by Samuel in chapter 16 and slays the giant Goliath in chapter 17, 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 to 4, I'm sorry, I know I'm jumping around. That's 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 to 4, says, Now it came that he had finished speaking to Saul, that's David, that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. We see here an agape love that Jesus talks about, loving him as himself, which is immediate. Jonathan and David have much in common, despite the differences of their background. They're both bold fighters. They both trust God for the outcomes of the quests that they've each taken on against the Philistines. And they're men of action who are in relationship with God. Here we see that Jonathan gives up that which he owns. I love this. So that David is no longer clothed as a lowly shepherd, but clothed as a member of the royal household in a robe and equipped as a soldier in the army. Because Jonathan surrendered to God, he could see the hand of the Lord upon David. He knew David's destiny and was perfectly willing to set aside his own position and his own ambition in order to honour God's choice. I think we can see a symbol here in Jonathan handing over his clothing and his armour as the crown prince, that he is affirming David's right to his position and willingly surrendering it to him. What a beautiful picture of friendship and of the affinity between these two men. Their love and affection were sincere, so much so that their souls were knit together and they made a covenant. Even though Jonathan could have allowed his worldly concerns regarding the throne to dictate his attitude towards David, he chose to love deeply and faithfully, regardless of circumstance. Perhaps the person or people with whom God is calling us into deep, faithful friendship are not the people we expect. Perhaps they're the people that the world would determine to be the most unlikely. Even our rivals, our competition, our enemies, who are actually far more like us than it initially seems. Jonathan continues to display complete faithfulness to David according to this covenant throughout the following few chapters in 1 Samuel. They make several covenants with one another over the years of their friendship. Kingdom friendship does not err or waver. The commitment grows with time. Like Elizabeth with Mary, Jonathan perceives what God is doing and he recognises David as the purpose king of Israel. He greatly delighted in David and reconciled his friend and his father for some time. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 17 says, Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. The Old Testament writers tell us repeatedly about the love, commitment and faithfulness between these two. Like Elizabeth and Mary, we see that this friendship encourages both men and points them towards God. 1 Samuel 23:16 says, Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horesh and encouraged him in God. How might we come alongside our friends and point them towards God? How might we stay faithful repeatedly over the years 
and demonstrate God's faithfulness to us in our faithfulness to others. Lastly, kingdom friendship is sacrificial. I'm not going to say too much about this because I know Heather's going to talk about it later. There is too much content to read all of their story in full. But we see Jonathan eventually sacrificing his relationship with his own father to serve and protect his friend. Jonathan takes his life into his own hands, invoking the rage of his father and almost dying himself at the hands of his own father to protect David and to tell him to flee from Saul, who is intent upon killing him. Throughout their relationship, which extends over many years, Jonathan sacrifices to protect and to lift up David. He sacrifices his own ambitions and position. He sacrifices his relationship with his father. He sacrifices his own safety. Like Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. I want to return to what I said at the beginning. Kingdom friendships will always look like Jesus because he is the initiation of the kingdom of heaven coming on the earth. He is the alpha. He's the prototype. He is our standard. And Jonathan is a beautiful foreshadowing of what Jesus' friendship looks like. It is faithful and sacrificial. Jesus laid down everything for us as Jonathan did for David. He lived with his arms wide open, reaching out, and he made a new covenant with us. We were God's enemies, living in sin, dirty and broken. But Jesus came and gave us his life, choosing us for a deep and meaningful friendship with him. He doesn't give us this so that we can sit in church away from the world, unaffected and ineffective, but he offers us this incredible friendship so that we might offer ourselves in friendship to others, encouraging our friends, perceptive about what God is doing for their lives, faithful in every circumstance and sacrificial in the way that we love with true agape. I just want to finish my bit by reading Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now I'm going to hand over to Heather, who's going to talk to us about this friendship with God. Brilliant. Can you hear me? Fantastic. Um, 
Good morning. I just want to um, pick up on something that Mark said at the beginning. Um, as he was introducing us, you know, there was a, a woman um, in the media this week who was really publicly and humiliatingly told to sit down. <laughs> there was a woman in leadership who was, who was kind of put in her place um, by, by a man. And I just want to speak to all of the amazing radical women in this room, many of whom have had such an amazing impact on my faith and my heart. Um, we're in a society that tells us to sit down and shut up. You know, we're in a society that has us in a position that is lower. <laughs> um, or if we're not attached to a man that, you know, doesn't have us in a position at all. But God gives us a position. And it's not about the position that we are in in leadership in a church or anything. It's about our relationship with him. And um, he gives us a voice. He gives us um, a heart to reach out to others. So I just wanted to say thank you to all of the women in this room who have been so incredible to me. Um, and just you are known and you are loved um, and you have a voice. Um, it, yeah, I, I, I was asked in a job interview a couple of weeks ago for a freelance job that I'm doing at the minute, what I think of women in leadership. Um, and my answer was, well, I'm a woman in leadership. So um, I, I think um, that we are very known and very loved. Um, and I just wanted to start with that. But let's spend some time digging into the word. I'm going to continue um, Flick's message of talking about friendship. And the burden that's really on my heart is just the, that, or the idea of um, that we can just live in friendship with God. That's been the, something that God has been talking to me about for a long time. So we're going to um, spend some time digging into the word um, in just a moment. This is... Um, the source of everything that we need to know about life and about God and about how the two work together. You know, this is the only book where the author is in love with the reader. It's, we know this already. Whoa. This is, someone, someone tweet this, okay? The, the, the Bible is the only book where the author is in love with the reader. Yeah? We know this already, that the Bible, this amazing book that we have access to, is not a rule book, but it's a love story. It's not a, a religious text that's designed for us to, to study it and learn to discuss it in the most eloquent way. But it's a love letter that points us back to the one who wrote it. That's the whole point. And we're going we're gonna to spend some time digging into God's word today. Flick has done such a great job at showing us what friendship looks like in the context of personal relationships. Um, the theme of friendship has been right at the heart of the work and the ministry that we do here at Faith Life. We spend a lot of time talking about what it looks like to build meaningful relationships with God at the center of them. And this is something that Flick does really well. I get the privilege every couple of weeks of hanging out at Grow Baby. Um, and it's so clear to me that friendship is at the heart of that community you know people come in and they know that they're loved and valued you come in and it's not about grabbing free clothes people come in and sit and talk to these friends that they've made for two hours and just for that two, the, that two hour slot they're not doing life on their own that's what we're designed to bring to that community so friendship one could say is just a tool it's a way of loving people and the way that we define love is the thing that's going to come out in the friendships that we have and the way that we love people in our circle. So many of us would define friendship as uh, sacrifice and commitment. And so it's these values that are going to be the foundation of the friendships that we have and the, the way that we relate to them. Sacrifice is one of the things that I see flowing through Grow Baby, not 
the kind of sacrifice that they make movies about, but a gentle lifestyle of sacrifice. At the heart of that project are these questions of how can I be of service to these people? How can I help these people? How can I um, consistently show them how loved and valued they are? How can I represent a sacrificial God to them? And so we talk a lot as a team about how community, how family, has to be at the centre of the ministry and work we do as a church. We have, uh, we're lucky enough here to have great teaching um, and a fantastic worship band, and we have Jess's chocolate brownies, but it's the, <laughs> it's the relationships, it's those friendships that call us into something that is bigger than ourselves, right? It's those relationships that mean that this church thing isn't about going to a service on a Sunday because it's the right thing to do, or receiving teaching so that we can have a better theological understanding. Um, It's more than going through the motions because that's what we do. This church thing is about being part of a family and a community. So Ephesians 4 verse 2 tells us to be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. I'm going to skip through a couple of verses quickly. So they're they're up on the screen, but you could flick with me if you want. 1 Corinthians 12.13 tells us, But by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. And 1 Corinthians 12.25-26 shows us that God put the body of Christ together so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. I don't want to cover the things that Flick has already talked about, and we're going to uh, dig into the word with a slightly different focus. But this is so clear to me that deep, meaningful relationships, friendships, are at the top of God's agenda. But this value of friendship has come up a lot in my journey. As I've grown in my faith and as I've stepped into leadership, one burden that God has really put on my heart, that this, um, this fullness of life that Jesus promises, this abundance of joy and his purpose comes from a deep and meaningful friendship with God. To give you a quick overview of my story, I grew up in a non-Christian family and God and his church were never really part of the picture for me until I was 16 or 17. Um, And before I met Jesus, I had a real orphan heart. I was fiercely independent. I didn't feel loved or lovable. And I was determined that I didn't need to be, that I was going to forge my way forward and that I was okay on my own. God really had to come in strong to show me that he was there. But once he did, I couldn't ignore him. It was never really an option to live a life half committed to Jesus. You know, I didn't know him at all, and then he completely stole my heart. So this is what God has shown me. There's such a difference between the life of a Christian for whom church is a part of the week and who prays and reads the Bible because it's the way that things are done or because it's what they should do. And the life of a Christian who is living in this vibrant and dynamic friendship with God. You know, one looks like doing things in order to be enough and to have enough and to say enough. Well, the other one is about being. One looks like religion and the other one looks like adventure. I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. I think that many of us have times where we fall into that first category, even when we have known God as a friend in this way. But here's the message that I see flowing through the word. He is constantly and consistently calling us back into this adventure with him. That's what, the, that's what many of the parables are about. That's what the prodigal son is all about. You know, it's not about, um, 
It, it's about being called back into this adventure, being called back into the arms of our Father. In John 10, verse 10, a verse that we'll all know well, Jesus puts it this way. He says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So let's get into the word. We're going to turn to Genesis 2, verse 18 to 24. And I'm reading today from the NIV version. It should be up on the screen. Um, So from verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all of the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called them, that was its name. So the man gave names to all of the livestock, the birds in the sky and all of the wild animals. (coughs) Excuse me. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed the place up with flesh. Then the Lord God made woman out of the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. I love that in this account we get to see the thought process of God in creation. So he created everything, the the sun and the moon, the stars and the oceans, the animals, he created all of that. And yet none of it really gave him what he yearned for in creation. He wanted relationship, and so he made man in his own image. He could have a conversation with him, and he could be a part of God's story on this earth. And I love this chat that God and Adam were having. God showing Adam each animal and bird one at a time and allowing, God to name, and allowing Adam sorry, to name it, and that is what it is called. This act of naming the animals in a way gave Adam lordship over them. In that day, it was um, an act of authority to, to impose a name on something. And uh, that process meant that Adam was trusted by God, and God gave him this responsibility. God was coming good on his word that Adam would rule over the birds and the fish and the creatures. But this conversation was bigger than just a task to give all of the animals a name. It made Adam aware of his aloneness, something that he wouldn't have have known until then. And we can see that this naming game is sandwiched between um, these two lines. Firstly, God saw that it is not good for man to be alone and said, I will make a helper suitable for him. And then at the end of the process, it is noted that no suitable helper was found for him. In the conversation, God and Adam interacted. Adam was a part of the creation creation process with God. And then a need that Adam had became apparent to God, and God took steps to to solve the problem by creating something new. And that looks a lot like a conversation between friends to me. So we know that God created Adam and Eve very specifically with a particular reason in mind. It wasn't random, and it wasn't without purpose. They were created in an intentional step. And there's something about that part of the creation process that set them apart from the other animals and creatures. So uh, so in Genesis 1, verse 25 and 26, God says, let us make man in our own image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and over all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. It says in, the ge- in Genesis that God saw all that he had made, and it is very good. 
But this is the part that really set man apart from everything else. There's this odd part of the process, which we don't see in, in animals or birds. It said, then the Lord God formed a man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Man was created on the same day as the livestock and the birds and the fish. And yet there's something different um, between the two. In man, flesh and uh, flesh and spirit, heaven and earth, were brought together in an intentional creation. So earth, the dust of the earth, and heaven, the breath of God, were brought together and man was created. We, in humanity, in you and in me, we see... The natural, we see cells forming in the womb, we see DNA being passed down from parents to children, we see personalities growing and forming. We see that interact with the spiritual. We see that we are not just natural beings, but that we, are, we have the breath of God inside of us. And the word that's been translated here as breath is nishama. It's a word that's been used in the context of God and the context of man, but not of any other creatures. Um, there's loads wrapped up in, that, in this word. It comes from the word nisham, meaning to pant. So there is a physical element to it, but it goes deeper than that. Um, it actually carries the meaning of divine inspiration or a passing on of intellect. And it's also used to mean the soul or the spirit. So the word nishama carries this meaning of the spiritual part of man, the most important part, which wasn't formed naturally, but breathed in in creation. It means that we're not just a body, we're not just a personality, we're not just the job that we can do or the abilities that we have, but that we have the life of God inside of us. And we see this all the way through the creation process. Just as the earth was made as a home for his presence, we were made as a home for him. We are made as a home for the creator. So why did God do that? Why did he make sure there is something of himself in us? Here's the idea. Here's what I really want us to grasp this morning. It was all to point us towards him. All of creation is made to point us to the one who is at home in us. He created us in such a way that we can experience his presence. We can have a conversation with him. We can worship him because he wanted to know us. He wanted to walk with us. Before the fall in the garden, Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. There is no work to be done other than enjoying him and caring for this world that he had put them in. And this is how it's supposed to be. And it's the kind of relationship that Jesus restored us back into on the cross. Because of Jesus, sin doesn't act as a barrier between us and God anymore. We are able to live in communion with him. He reveals his character and we can really know him like a friend. Jesus reminds us of this in the Gospels. He says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Let's remember where this sweet friendship begins. We love because he first loved us. Love has its beginning in him. And there's something really special about that word friend. It's used throughout the New Testament to describe um, the access to God's character that we have in Jesus. And there are several men in the Old Testament um, who are called God's friend. It's an intimate and personal term. It conveys closeness and trust. If I call you my friend, I'm implying that you have 
access to something of my character that not everyone does, that you know me in a way that isn't available to everyone, that I'm relating to you in a familiar way. And we can all conjure up in our mind an image of a friend, qualities that we share with someone who is close to our heart. I love the way that God designed friendship, the way that he put us together so that we might love each other in a way that speaks so strongly of this love that he has for us. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, like I said, the point of creation is to point to the one who created. The purpose of his love is to point to the one who loved us first. This is the thing. The way that we love one another and the way that we give ourselves to friendship uh, translates into the way that we see our relationship with God and the love that he has for us. A lot of the ways that I've experienced God are through the love poured out for me from other people, through the care and the affection. It is really humbling to, to feel pursued, and in this pursuit, we are reminded that God sees us. I'm in danger of using a, a Christian cliche here, but we are just like the moon. We get to reflect the sun. And the really cool thing is that we get to be the people who pursue other people and be this reflection of God's love for them too. And isn't it so cool that the, the same characteristics that join us to one another, that that word friend is exactly the same word that God uses to define his relationship with us. The same things that join us to one another are the things that join us to God. The same characteristics that we share with one another, we can share with God with the God of all creation, the God of the universe. And that is what true religion, what friendship with God is all about. This characteristic, those characteristics that unite us as friends are the very same things that join us to him. And life is all about sharing that friendship with him. That's all there is to it. So just to wrap up, I want to bring out two or three points which are included in the name friend of God. And we can ask ourselves if they apply in the way that we relate to him. So firstly, friends are frank and familiar with one another. God and Adam engaged in conversation. Even when Adam had messed up and eaten the apple, God went looking for him in the garden and he wanted to have that conversation with him. There's another character in the Old Testament called Abraham and, and he was called the friend of God. And he had this conversation with God when he couldn't understand why God wasn't fulfilling his promise to him. Sovereign Lord, what can I do since I remain childless? He said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. When God was thinking about destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, he met with Abraham and the two talked about it. Um, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? He asked himself. The two had this back and forth conversation. God spoke freely and frankly to Abraham about his decision making. He spoke to Abraham about the plans that he had, and Abraham complained to God with honesty about the, about the position that he was in. And both of these would have been really odd without the friendship that underlay them. So friends talk openly and frankly with one another. Secondly, friends keep no secrets. There are very few to whom we can open all of the depths of our heart. Like a house, there are dark corners and dusty rooms that we would rather people don't go into. And so we keep them in the nice parts that we can bear to show them. There are, um, if we have that trust in our relationship with God, we can spread out all of our mess and our brokenness before him, knowing that he wants to be there with us. 
And as the perfect friend, he would rather that we turn to him with this frankness and familiarity than hide parts of ourselves from him, um, that he might not have access. I just wanted to read you a, a Facebook post that I saw this week. Um, it was from um, a girl who had just moved into her own apartment and her father had died the year before. And she spoke about some friends who had come around to help her and it just spoke so strongly to me of the love of God. So she says this. She said, The year after my dad died was so bad, I don't remember 90% of it. I moved into a, a new apartment and I was unable to unpack. For months, I was ashamed I couldn't unpack. How can you be unable to unpack? Just open the boxes. That was the year I, died. I cried for 19 days straight. My good friend David, whom I've known since high school, knew I was struggling and felt helpless. He said, you are loved and we need you. But I said, it doesn't matter, but thanks. So he took a risk. It very well could have ended badly. I could have lashed out. I could have been really offended. But he took the risk. He sent out an email to a group of local friends without my knowledge and said, Sheila's struggling. She needs our help. Let's all go over there and unpack her apartment for her. Bring food. Let's make it fun. David sent an email to me saying, will you be, in home? Will you be home on Thursday night? Can I stop by? I said, sure, sitting around um, surrounded by 200 unpacked boxes. At 6 p.m. on Thursday night, the doorbell rang, and 10 of my friends barged in, bearing platters of food, cleaning products, and a complete unconcern for my, wait, you can't come in here, I haven't unpacked yet, <laughs> protests. They ignored me, and we got to work. And they unpacked my boxes, they put away my 1,500 books, they hung pictures for me, they organized my closet and put away my clothes. Meanwhile, someone set up a, a taco-making station in the kitchen. People bought beer. By the end of the night, my apartment was all set up. I was literally unable to do the simplest things, and nobody judged me. They were like superheroes, sweeping in. One friend arrived late, stood in the hallway, looked at me and said, put me to work. One of my friends basically took over hanging all of my posters and pictures. I'm really good at measuring stuff, she said. Let me put these up in your hallway. I hovered, not wanting to give up control. Wait, put that one there, maybe? She said, go away. I did. And she was much better at hanging stuff than I was. She put up a picture and said, here's a break for dinner. Please note that my friend Sheila's dinner plate is resting on my DVD player. I was overwhelmed at the sight of all my crazy friends turning themselves into Santa's workshop on my behalf without asking me. They just showed up and barged in. I was embarrassed for 10 minutes, but they were all so practical and bossy, I felt I had no choice but to, to let that go. At the end of the night, I looked at my friend's husband, a quiet guy who drives a boat on the Hudson, a practical man of few words, and I just looked at him, speechless, not knowing what to say, not knowing how to say thank you, especially to this tough, resilient, self-sufficient man. He looked at me, saw the look on my face, understood the look, understood everything that was behind it, and said, listen, what we did tonight was barn-raising. That's the end. The ask for help advice is well-meaning, but not really thought through. There's shame. There's enforced helplessness. There's the feeling you're not worth it. My friends didn't wait for me to ask. They showed up. They took over. They didn't ask. When they all swept out of there four hours later, my place was a home. Not only was everything put away, but now it had a memory attached to it, a group memory. Um, friends, laughing, jokes, hard work. These are the kind of friends that I have. Be that kind of friend to others.
to reiterate, this plan could have backfired. I very well could have been offended, insulted, or hurt. David took that risk. Being a friend takes commitment, a willingness to take that risk. So if I can just ask the band to come back up. Um, Finally, friends remain available for each other. There was a point in the story of Moses, also called the friend of God, when Moses was begging God not to leave him to do this mammoth task of saving the Israelites by himself. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know with whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that the nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Until this point, the requests that Moses was making of God had been unparalleled. But God was not offended by the things that he was asking him. How much more then can we step into the presence of God and present our requests to him? He is available to us. This is a pretty great picture of friendship. It's a picture that says, I don't need anything from you. I just want you to be near. I just want you to be with me. So as we stand and go back into worship, um, this is our focus. It's a focus that says, God, right now, we do not want anything from you. We just want you to be near. Father, I thank you that you are close. I thank you that you promise to never leave us nor forsake us. I thank you that you cannot be disappointed by us. You cannot be let down to the point of walking away. And Father, right now, we we come to you in this amazing friendship that you have given us. And we thank you that, yeah, this is so free for us to access. And today we say we do not want anything from you, God. We just want you to be near. Um, So there was a picture that someone gave to me that I just want to share with you. Um, I believe this is an invitation into friendship with God. Yeah. Um, so there was this picture of um, these beautiful rugged cliffs going down into um, a, a beach, a cove, and there was a boat out on the sea. And there was an invitation to get into the boat. Um, but the person who was being invited didn't want to get into the boat because um, they were frightened that a storm would come and that it would be overwhelming and that it would be really frightening. And so they, they didn't want to get into the boat. Um, but the invitation is there to, to enter the boat and just to trust God because mm. the storm won't be overwhelming. Um, and I believe that that invitation to get into the boat is an invitation into friendship with God for someone this morning. An invitation to, to just enter into that free and open friendship that Heather's been talking about. So we're going to have some some people over by the prayer ministry bit at the end. And if you feel that's for you, if that's spoken to your heart, um, please uh, respond and just um, pray with um, pray with someone and just respond to the Lord and take this time to hear his voice. Yeah, let's just let us end with some worship. If you want to stand, if you're able to stand, feel free. If you want to sit, that's fine.